Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I have Chloe Ashby with me today. She is an author and an arts journalist based in London. Her arts journalism spans across interviews, reviews of exhibitions and books, and she's also a former editor of Monocle magazine. She's the author of two nonfiction books, Look at this if you love great art and also Colours of Art, the story of art in 80 palettes, which is out this August. And her debut novel, Wet Paint, is out now. Thank you so much for being here, Chloe. Hi, Penny. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. It was um, Abigail, when she was on the podcast, you mentioned wet paint when she was reading a proof. And as soon as she told me what it was about, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to read this book. It's so up my street. On so many levels, it's so up my street. But first of all, could you just give us a quick, for the listener, a quick brief rundown of what the book is about? Yes. Um, Yes, I will. And also that was the loveliest thing to hear that. I think I told you I'd listened to almost the whole episode and then pressed pause and then forgot to come back to it and then did about a week later and heard this lovely recommendation. So, yes, just a quick thank you to Abigail for that. But yes, so Wet Paint is about Eve, a young woman who, if you asked how she was, would probably tell you she is fine in the way that we often do. She has been scraping along for the past few years, doing things like waiting tables and cleaning her shared flat in exchange for cheap rent. And she's been relying on various small routines, among them her weekly visits to the Courtauld Gallery, where she goes and kind of parks herself in front of Manet's painted barmaid, who's almost her de facto therapist. So since the death of her best friend, she has been keeping everything and everyone really at arm's length. But there are painful memories that she can't shake. And it's not long before this incredibly precarity maintained life that she has begins to unravel. And that's where the book takes us. Um, I... The first thing I would love to talk about is um, this painting. And I guess what I was thinking as I was writing it, first of all, it's just, um, it's such a really interesting experience being with a character as they're viewing others. And there's a lot of seeing that's happened happening in this book, which we'll, we'll talk about. But, um, but I, um, I guess I, my first question is um, who came first, Susan or Eve for you? Oh, it's such a brilliant question. Um, and the answer is them both. Yeah. So the book started, it, it did It did start with two things. One of those things was Eve's voice. And that voice came to me, you know, exactly as it is in the book. It was this kind of spiky, um, detached, often quite dry, funny in a way, uh, in her own way. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was this voice that just, yeah, it just it just came into my head, and 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 then it was kind of the process of working out, you know, why she sounds the way she sounds, mm. and almost going backwards from there. So that came to me, and at the same time, this painting that I have kind of been endlessly fascinated with for sort of as long as I can remember. But at university, I studied at the Courtauld, and I remember that was the first time I saw it in the flesh, um, and. I, pr- I think probably, you know, I'd always been interested in the painting, but in the other side of my writing life, which I know we're going to get to later, I 
write exhibition reviews and I interview artists and the way that I often begin a piece and find my way into an article is to kind of have a visual hook or mm. you know like like a kickstart or a prompt or something and I guess the painting was that for me you know for the novel um and in the beginning I I, di- I didn't sort of sit down and think okay I'm going to write a book and and this is going to be a key part of it it was more that I was kind of trying a different form of writing mm. and and I thought well what should what, what should I play around with here and those two things just sort of came to me oh that's so interesting so so basically you could almost take a tool that you rely on in your kind of writing day job so to speak and yeah. um, transform it into how you can approach fiction that's so interesting and I'm sure so many listeners will be fascinated to hear that and I think it's a really um it's it's really about finding your way in sometimes isn't it and maybe you need to go in in the way that you would usually let yourself into work yeah I think so I mean any I think anyone who writes will understand that fear of staring at a blank page um you know, which I still have. It's ridiculous. I don't know why I do, but when I sit down sometimes to write these these uh, freelance, more journalistic pieces, which you know, they, it might only be eight hundred words, but I often sit down and think, right, how am I going to start this one? Um, and and so for me, I think because I am quite a visual person, I do love to have that visual hook. And yeah, I think it just. It, it just sort of sort of happened um, and then became a very very important part of the book and what happened over time is that this voice and this image um you know Eve and Suzanne Suzanne is the name of the barmaid as the book goes on and as my writing developed they kind of begin to they began to sort of merge mm, yeah and um and throughout the book um Eve has got this she's experienced this quite extreme grief um, a few years earlier and she's keeping it very carefully hidden from everyone around her Um, and she's managing her life in very kind of in a very sort of precarious but minute way in order to function and it's a really it was it's it was fascinating to read because I think um, often we think of grief in its acuteness in perhaps its immediacy after we lose somebody. Um, but we don't often explore and talk about this really quite terrifying long-term grief that can happen when people can get stuck, especially I think when the death is a very difficult death for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did, again, was that was that grief, again, so your, her voice came first, but, but was it quite clear to you that there was some trauma underlying the way she was managing everything in her, in the way that she was. Yeah, I think yes, I think from the start it was clear to me that there was something something missing in her life and that I think one of the sort of key ideas that I wanted to explore with the book and that tied in so well with this painting is the kind of the disconnect that goes on for so many of us between you know, at least at certain times of our life, between the way that we appear and kind of present ourselves to the world and to to others and the way that we feel. Mm. Um, and, you know, how kind of it, it can be a, a huge disconnect that is very hard to kind of bridge. And so, yeah, that was something that I that I was really interested in from the start. And when it came to the grief side of things, I think, 
I wanted to, I guess, explore the like the small ways as well in which grief can kind of snag at you over time. So for Eve, there are moments when it's unbearable and when she's kind of experiencing flashbacks that it's almost take over the present. And this mm-hmm. is the big thing for her. She, her present is so sort of tethered to the past that she's unable to move forward. Um, and I think that's partly because when she experienced this death, she was already in this sort of phase of her life where, you know, this, what I've sort of calling kind of the hazy mid twenties when you're figuring out who and what you want to be, um, which is a kind of complicated enough time as it is. And then you add trauma into the mix. And I think, yeah, it's easy to find yourself sort of teetering on the edge. Um, yeah. When she's, and when she experiences this trauma, it's at the end of university. And it is that it's like that point in your life where you're, you're very much sort of on the edge of young adulthood and proper adulthood in a way, aren't you? It's like we always, yeah. we don't, we don't sort of suddenly become adults when we're 18. We're in this sort of almost transition period sort of between maybe 18 and sort of 23, 24 or something like that, where you're sort of a young adult and um, exactly. and she's in that place and, and that trauma, it's like it almost causes her to be stuck there. And, yeah. and kind of, there's a kind of yeah. stasis, which is so fascinating. And she clings onto it. So that stasis, she really clings onto it because you can see that it has served her. Like she has been able to function on a certain level just by keeping everything as samey and safe as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, one of the things I always say about Eve, um, and I, could, I kind of admire this about her, um, even though it's not necessarily always healthy, but, you know, Eve is very much being um, at a time when lots of us, definitely I, feel like we should always be doing stuff. Mm-hmm. We should always be moving forward and, and striving. And, yeah. Yes, yeah, striving. Um, and she's the opposite. She just wants to be. And part of that, I think, is that, you know that it's wrapped up with the fear of doing and moving on and what that means in terms of moving on from this friend who has died um and and yeah this sort of the whole idea of um her being in this kind of unfixed sort of strange mid-space that's why I came up with the the name of the book in the end wet paint because I wanted to kind of get across the idea that she's kind of unformed in some way and she life is wobbly and unstable um yeah the, the, there's the stuff that needs to happen enable in order for her to be able to move on and to yeah. move forward and um, let's talk for a minute about this whole idea of being seen um because what happens to Eve is that she ends up um because of a few things that happen early in the book, ends up going off to become a, a life model in order to earn some money. And it's so completely fascinating. And I love the different ways in which you play with, with her being seen. Um, uh, it's something I'm completely obsessed with in literature and cinema as well, <laughs> this idea of seeing and being seen. And I guess I just wanted to um, to to talk to you about this, like, uh, why, why did you choose life modeling specifically? There's there's such an interesting element of display and, and what's fascinating about her as a character, even though this is set a contemporary novel, there's very little in the way of being seen on social media and things like that in the book. Um, but, but she exposes herself very much in this classroom where other people are watching her. But to me, the thing I found so fascinating about it is this idea that she, 
that where you play with the with the control of it and that where she has control over being seen and when she doesn't have control and how that goes back and forth throughout the novel. Yeah. Um, oh, well, thank you, first of all. Um, it's something that I have, this, yeah, the subject of seeing and being seen, I have been interested in for a really long time. I think even when I was at university, I was studying art history and I would, that was what I kind of focused on in my dissertation. And um, yeah, with so the thing that I, the, the main reason I wanted Eve to become a life model, which is something she does in a kind of, in a bid for empowerment, it's a way of her taking control, you know, and she she gets excited by the, the thought that all these people are giving up their time to come and look at her. And that does make her feel good and it does make her feel seen and appreciated in the beginning. Um, but yeah, the reason I wanted this for Eve was because there is, partly it was to emphasize this this disconnect between how she presents herself and how she feels because the idea is kind of heightened once she gets into the studio because she is literally still she she's she's standing totally still totally naked in front of these strangers and yet her mind is kind of racing a lot of the time um or at least that's how it as things go as thing as time goes on um yeah she starts to realize that she's maybe not being seen in the way that she initially thought she would be um she realizes that to the students she's kind of more of a still life than a person i think she compares herself to a block of wood <laughs> or a, or a fruit bowl at some point um but another thing i think is to begin with, at least, the the looking that goes on within the life drawing studio is actually a kind of, it's a safer and less charged kind of looking than the looking that goes on when she is working in the restaurant, for example, um, which is, is, there's a scene that very early on in the book, she she's working in a restaurant and she's kind of being looked at in a way that is inappropriate, being touched as well um, by a customer. and yeah so which is something that I just find I I just as soon as it kind of came to me I ran with it because the thought that you could feel safer and the looking could feel safer when you are completely naked when you're clothed out in the real world was kind of it's sort of crazy um so yeah it's it's a subject I've kind of always been interested in and then of course when you think about the painting as well such a key part of this Manet painting which for, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, it shows um, a barmaid. She's she's standing behind a bar and behind her is this kind of huge gold frame mirror. And in the mirror, you can see a crowd kind of mingling, just going about that evening. But the crowd is sort of all a blur. And in contrast, the, the barmaid's this really hyper-realized figure. Um, and yet she's sort of invisible. No one's paying any attention to her. Um, she is in the middle of this crowded room and yet she's entirely alone. And then on top of that, then you begin to notice there's this shadowy kind of male figure reflected in the mirror who's looking at her. Is she looking at him? So there's there's so much about it. I think like you, yeah, I um I love the the topic. 
I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that anyone listening mm. can can look at it um, as as they're listening as well because it is it's really incredible and you printed it you had it printed in the front which I'm so so brilliant mm. that you were able to get permission to do that because I, I kept flipping to it and every time oh. there was a scene where she was watching um, Suzanne I would go to the front and just look at her again and see what she was seeing. Um, but yeah, because I, I I found that really interesting as well that juxtaposition between um, um, Eve's need to feel seen and to control the way she is seen, and then the way in which she sees Suzanne and how she relies mm. on watching her, um, and and how those work together. Really, really fascinating. And it was just um, it's so in, like I think the things that I really loved particularly when in the studio where there is this where you can see that line being crossed and blurred and where she starts to lose control and it goes and it and and tries to gain it back and it's in those little moments where there's just infringements on her of somebody not turning away when she's putting her robe on you know the difference between how you can be on a stage essentially and controlling the way that the viewer sees you and once you're off stage then um you know that how if somebody infringes on that and tries to control how how the try tries the viewer when the viewer tries to control that how um completely terrifying that is you can feel it you can see yeah. the difference between um when she has control and when she doesn't have control over her body and yeah. how people see her body um i find it so interesting i did um I've been doing my master's again. So I reread John Berger and um, I've been writing about this in in my (laughs) dissertation as well, actually. And, um, and this idea of uh, very much of how women are both viewed, but also completely aware all the time about how they're being viewed. And you feel that with Eve, you feel like her constant awareness in her life and her jobs that she do, she does even aside from um, the life modeling. But as you say, when she's a barmaid and when she's um, a waitress, like constantly aware of how she's being looked at mm. um, and how modeling for her is, is like gaining control rather than losing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's funny, yeah, those moments that you mention where where that line is crossed even within the studio. So there are a few awkward moments before, you know, before the guy who's organizing the class says, okay, everyone kind of start drawing. But when he and it's fine when when they're looking at her when she when that happens and when he's looking at her when that happens. But before when he comes up close to her on this sort of mini stage, she suddenly is so aware that there is a stranger just a couple of inches away from her when she's not wearing clothes or or at this point, maybe she's got a robe over her. But still, suddenly it becomes Mm. um, charged in a way that it's not when she is posing and and it's sort of official um, yeah. unquote, if that makes sense um but yeah and I, and I think you're right that she is aware of how people are looking at her with through all the jobs and even when she starts doing the babysitting or she likes mm. to call it nannying because it sounds more professional but the you know she she's aware that people of the way people look at her with when she's with this little girl and like yeah. does she look like a mum does she feel like a mum um she yeah she's and I, and I think it's quite a normal thing we live in this world where you know especially as a woman I think it's very hard mm. to move through the world and not experience that yeah it's true and I really I found that really interesting and definitely relatable this idea of like assessing how you're appearing 
um, quite constantly she's assessing how she's appearing to others and partly what she's doing is making sure that she's appearing to look like she's functioning properly, of course. Yeah. Like so many people who are experiencing what she's experiencing in, in inside her head. Um, and that's that's something I want to talk to you about as well. This idea of um, because throughout the novel that she experiences really quite severe intrusive thoughts about mm. the trauma that she has experienced. And they are very intrusive, you know, they interrupt the narrative. Um quite frequently and you switch to italics when we do that and we very much know that we're inside of her head in a way that is uncontrollable by her and I found that mm. just such a really beautiful and interesting interesting device because it was um you can feel that lack of control she has in being able to control when the memories are coming to her because they're often coming in really inappropriate moments um and and affecting her yeah. ability to function in her life. Um, and you really feel that as a reader, the way it intrudes. And so I, I wanted to ask about the process of coming that of that coming together. Was that, did that happen very naturally along with Eve's voice? Or was that something that you layered in afterwards in terms of how you were going to denote it on the page and things like that? Mm. I think with the flashbacks, it was more something that I layered in after. And a big part of it was wanting to give a voice to Grace, to this friend of hers who's mm-hmm. died. Um, so the book, you know, it it's Eve's story, but it's such a kind of an ode to their friendship um, and to the time that they spent together. And I think it, it felt important to have you know, they, these these are flashbacks and, and memories that do intrude and they are overwhelming, but also lots of them, especially at the beginning of the book, they're happy memories. Mm. And I really wanted to show a kind of softer side to Eve um, and a side to her where she is open and when she feels comfortable and also just to show that love between these two young women. Um so yes they start off kind of they're fairly lengthy to begin with and they provide kind of snapshots of them being silly or um I don't know, just doing normal stuff that they're, they're not big moments I think that was another thing I just wanted to show the little everyday things that went on between them because they're as much what she misses as kind of the big the big stuff mm. um and then with time they begin to kind of snag at her more frequently and they're quite sort of um short sharp flashes um and they become very overwhelming until the point where it all sort of spills over and you're not quite sure whether you're in the past or the present um but yeah and so and and with them again to get that kind of intimacy across I made a decision to refer to Grace in, in the second person is you so that hopefully the reader kind of feels that um yeah, feels that intimacy there and and the closeness. Um, yes, I don't know if I've, I've sort of rambled off. No, no, it does. There. It makes perfect sense because the I think from a reader perspective, the you it does it like you feel so close to them, um, and I think it's it's really interesting because the, the novel is is in mostly in the first person except for these um, these memories and the switching to the second person, it's it almost sort of draws you in even closer 
um, mm. uh, which is really interesting because there is also, as you say, because it, it changes and it sort of escalates as you go through the book, these moments. And that escalation starts to feel more claustrophobic. You almost feel more claustrophobic inside of Eve's head. Um, but yeah, so it's a really, it's, it was just, it's just such an interesting way of doing it. Um, yeah, I thought, yeah, it was really, oh. really done. Really well, beautifully thank done. You. Um, I think it's, it's tricky, isn't it? With anything that, um, although it's not labeled as anything, it does feel, I guess, like perhaps PTSD or something where, where the lines begin to blur and it's not easy to get that kind of thing across on the page and so yeah so yeah so it was a really it was just a really interesting way of handling this idea of you know suddenly being very inside somebody's head yeah oh well thank you I mean that I think that is what I wanted for the book you know I I I, I hope the reader feels that they're in his head and I and I'm aware that at times that will probably be a kind of testing um experience and people have said to me that you know they they love her, they want to hug her, then they want to shake her um, <laughs> and shout at her. But I kind of, that that makes sense to me and that's kind of great to hear because that's what often how you feel with friends, isn't it? Um, yeah, and it, it's a very immersive book in that sense. Yes. And I think yeah. that that second person voice sort of adds an extra layer of kind of, of, of intimacy for sure. Um, and it is really wonderful to get a bit of grace because obviously mm. um, when you have a character that is dead right from the beginning, it's yeah. a challenge, isn't it, to make <laughs> it is. to make us really understand what's missing from Eve's life. Yeah, yeah, and and to help with that, you know, to to maybe help the reader empathize with Eve more when she is making mistakes and mm. when she you know outwardly is well make yeah just not always being the best version of herself not always being a good person um yeah I hope and, that it and uh, <laughs> and on that note and that's so interesting so also on that note you know she has a little bit of a and this was one of my favorite bits about her I have to say is her kleptomania is just oh god yeah it's well, so she would call it great. borrowing penny <laughs> sorry what's it called she she would call it borrowing she would call it course. borrowing yes <laughs> yeah but I love that because it's um it's so um it's so unacceptable on so many levels especially because it's often from people who trust her yeah and so it's but I love that and I love this idea that you know that she's she's I still I do forgive her I'm with her I understand and you understand even more as the book goes on about about what feelings she's trying to create when she Mm. she takes really bad risks like that yeah in terms of risking her friendships and the people who actually are there for her um and, uh, and it's just really interesting. I'm always fascinated by this idea of writing characters that have these really unlikable traits about themselves that do challenge us as readers to be there, to continue to be there by their side and kind of uh, not switch off from them with that kind mm-hmm. of behaviour. But um, but there's so much warmth in her um, yeah. that, that you totally are just like, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's not oh, that bad. <laughs> Yeah. And it kind of, you know, it goes back to the seeing and being seen stuff because it's sort of her way of trying on other characters and Mm. seeing how it feels to be, I don't know, to be the type of person who wears fancy nail polish or um, it's also about just 
comfort I think a lot of the time um especially when it comes to borrowing her flatmates stuff it mm. it makes her feel safe um yeah. so she does it for various reasons but yeah I mean I I forgive her I I would understand if the reason <laughs> um and then you know she starts off small as well doesn't she she well at least when she gets into the studio with things like sticks of gum it's not it's not um about the stealing it's about the feeling that yeah the, that the it creates in her yeah yeah, yeah. oh, oh well, she is a completely fascinating character completely Thank fascinating you. um and I just wanted to talk now a bit about your writing career overall because your writing work spans such a really gorgeous variety of work now. Um, you've obviously spent years as a journalist, um, but you've also written two nonfiction books. And I, I guess I wanted to ask about, first of all, did you always know that you wanted to write fiction as well? Or is that just something that just sort of opened up and happened over time? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a question I've kind of been thinking about because I've, I've been asked it a few times now and I, and I had to kind of figure out in my head what my answer was. But I mean, I've always, as I think lots of writers are, I've always been uh, a big reader. And I always knew that I did want to write. But I think, um, you know, at least at, at the at the age when I was, when I, when I knew I wanted to write, or I hoped that I could write for work, fiction didn't really cross my mind as a kind of viable option in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, and so I went down the journalism route, uh, which, you know, didn't feel like a second choice at the time. I, I also love that side of my writing. Um, but I think maybe fiction has always been in the back of my mind. Um, when I was, when I was younger, um, my step, my stepdad at the time, as in he's still my stepdad, but at the time he was, um, he was a books editor for a, a newspaper that's based in America. And we used to, or he used to get sent each week, tons of, of books. And it was so exciting. I always thought, cause just, I mean, just getting parcels in the post was a kind of exciting thing when I was a child. <laughs> I mean, getting books in the post is still the most exciting kind of it place. Is like, exciting, <laughs> isn't it? It is. um but he would you know he would take maybe one out of a pile in a week or every two weeks to review and then the rest would go into what we called the out pile which was this kind of huge huge pile of books that was actually conveniently located uh, beneath my bedroom and I would occasionally go and kind of oh gosh now I'm sounding like Eve steal books (laughs) sorry that's my dog barking in the background if you can hear um and and I would pretend to review them like he was reviewing them. And so I think I've always, you know, as well as always being a big reader, I've always kind of engaged with fiction and with novels on a, on a slightly kind of critical way as well. Um, but yeah, it was only, it was only, um, it was in 2017 when I started to write Wet Paint and it really came about because I just wanted something for myself and I wanted to try something new and I think I wanted to write without asking permission you know in journalism it's always okay or or, tends to be a case of pitching is your pitch going to be accepted there you get your commission and with this I could just go off and I could do it um so yeah it just started out as something for me and something that I love to do it's it's there is something so thrilling about that especially I think when when what it is that you do 
when when what you do creatively is becomes a job this idea of sort of um having almost like an affair on the side with your yeah. craft and yeah. <laughs> doing something different with it is so exciting in a funny kind of way yeah. um because it does it's like suddenly like nobody's given me permission to do this and there's something quite thrilling about that um I you know having spent years as a photographer I know that feeling as a photographer both then and now as a writer now that I'm earning money writing and I'm writing a novel on the side which nobody has paid me for and who knows um <laughs> it's there is something quite exciting about that isn't it about yeah not having permission from somebody to do something definitely and it does also you know thinking of the affair kind of analogy it often starts out as something that's fairly secretive I don't think I told anyone for a while um that I was doing it probably because I thought it would sound silly I don't know or I didn't know where it was going and as I said earlier for you know for a long time I I kind of was just having fun with it and I mm. and I didn't plan to write a book and it was only after you know so many months that I started to kind of take it more seriously and think okay maybe this could really be a thing um so yeah it's just a very it was a very freeing way I think to to get into it and your non-fiction books, the um, the one that was published last year, and then you've got another one coming out this year, um, were they ones that you uh, wrote proposals for and pitched, or were you approached by the publishers to write those books? So I was approached by the publisher, um, and for the first one, so for Look at This If You Love Great Art, that one was the happiest commission, partly because I had just handed my uh, notice in at uh, Monocle, the magazine I was working at before. And a- about a day later, uh, I got this commission, which was just the best timing. Um, and, you know, the year before that, I had gone down to four days a week and I was kind of, I, I-, I went into freelancing in a kind of very, um, I don't know, sensible uh, I was going to say that sounds so sensible. <laughs> I know, so boring. So unlike Eve, um, <laughs> that's a big difference between us. I think she's a lot more reckless than I am. Um, but yeah, so this then I was um, getting freelance full time, and I got this, and it was part of a series. There's also one on photography, one on music, and then they basically said, "Would you like to write about?" 100 artworks you love which for someone who's studied art history and you know always wanted to write about art it was kind of the dream commission Amazing. um yeah and then and then I was very lucky off the back of that uh different imprint and editor but same publishing house then needed someone for this book on colors and the history of color in art colors in art um and so yeah I've then since been working on this book which comes out in August Oh, that's so yeah. exciting. I'm always love talking to writers or, or artists of any kind that do multiple things within their craft, because I find it so interesting that people almost expect us to stick very strictly with one kind of genre. And that's not how craft works, art or craft, yeah. I don't think. And I think, uh, which I think writing is both an art and a craft. And um, and so I really, I'm always completely obsessed with talking to people about this. <laughs> because um, it feels really freeing. It feels really, really yeah. freeing. And I mean, maybe it doesn't day to day. I don't know how you feel, but it, I think in general, this idea that we can be freed from being locked into a very sp- specific way of working um, is very freeing. But so in reality, though, how is that working at the moment in terms of 
you're managing your time between nonfiction and freelance journalism. And now obviously you're doing a huge amount of work promoting wet paint, which anyone who's ever published a book knows how much work that is. Yeah. <laughs> how yes. is that, how is that fitting together now? Yeah. But it's yeah, it's a work in progress, the um <laughs> the balancing act. Um it, you know, it really depends on where I am at in my various schedules. Um so at the moment with with the art books, I I've kind of been able to put them to one side while I've been focusing on the wet paint promotion. Um I took a couple of weeks of the freelancing around kind of publication day just to really soak it all up and enjoy it um and also you know I was talking about it a lot and I wanted to be able to focus on that now I'm kind of right back into the freelancing as well and I don't know it's something I don't know if I've totally cracked the um the the workload kind of balance yet but I on the whole think that they complement each other really well I mean, just thinking, for example, about the novel writing and the journalism, the novel writing is, until you get to the editing stage, such a long, solitary Mm -hmm. process. And I, for one, really like a to-do list and to be able to tick stuff off my to-do list, uh, which I wouldn't be able to do for a long time if I was just sitting writing a novel. Um, And, you know, I like to get out there and to interview Mm. people and and with the promo stuff to talk to people like we're doing now. Um, So, you know, at times I think it can spill over into too much work and it can be quite hard to to keep all the like different plates spinning. But on the whole, I think that they they do complement each other well. And obviously now, as you know, I kind of smuggle one into the other, you know, smuggling the art into my fiction, which I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's something I'll always do, but it it is a spoiler. Um, it happens with the second, <laughs> the second book too. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's a satisfying or helpful no, answer it, it for is. people. Um, I think it's really interesting because. I don't know, this idea of, I think because of having been, I guess, a creative freelancer for like 20 years now, um, this idea that we only do one kind of thing and that um, we do it in a vacuum. And in a way, I think sometimes people think of novelists as living in this kind of vacuum. But, um, you know, where would the novels be without all of the different inputs from other parts of your life? And, you know, it's funny, I can't quite imagine only writing in that way. Um, when I wrote nonfiction, part of the reason I wanted to be in nonfiction and not memoir was because I wanted to interview loads of other people and have lots of other mm. stories in the book um, because yeah. that seemed interesting to me. Like I was like, oh, I want to talk to people. I want to talk to people. Yeah. Um, and the idea of only writing about myself was like, oh, I'll just have to be by myself though. Yeah, <laughs> and as much as I love spending time alone writing, I love to balance it off with speaking to others and being out in the world and interviewing people and all those other things. It's that side of writing is completely fascinating to me as well. Yeah. And it's where you get your inspiration, isn't it? By, by yeah, going out there and, and seeing things and doing things and overhearing things and, um, you know, at least when it comes to fiction. So, yeah, I think, oh, I think also there's the, there's the danger of that kind of slightly, um, romanticized old-fashioned view of a writer um you know who toils away at one one thing and Mm. 
is very solitary and only writes when inspiration strikes. Uh, but that's <laughs> just, you know, I mean, for most of us, not real. <laughs> I don't know for anyone, is that real life? I, know, the, I, think, if it is. I think if you only wrote when you're inspired, you wouldn't get a lot of writing done. No, I don't think, no. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how much needing to get paid will make you sit down at the computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Um, and I, and where, where's the best place to people, people to find you online if they wanted to connect with you or catch up, like which, which social media and things are best to find you? So I am on Twitter and Instagram at Chloe L. Ashby. And I have a website, which is chloeashby.com. Wait, well, I will put both of the, all of those in the, in the show notes. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And wet paint was just completely engrossing and delightful. And, oh, it was just an amazing world to be immersed in. So thank you so much for writing it. Oh, well, thank you. No, thank you so much. And that makes me very happy. Um, And I've loved talking to you. So thanks, Penny. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow and please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast.